on this very morning. I'm very grateful, even for very small things. Um, I do not know who designed the HVAC ductwork in this church, but can I just tell you, I am very grateful for the main heating duct that comes into the men's bathroom. I don't know why, but I'm just really grateful on a morning like this that someone thought about that. So it's good to be grateful even for little things. (laughs) A 27-year-old woman down in Fort Pierce, Florida, walked into her McDonald's and wanted a McNuggets meal. The employee behind the counter took her money, took the order, and then was told that the restaurant had run out of those warm, tasty, bite-sized McNuggets. So the customer was then informed of the fact that there were no uh, McNuggets left and she would have to get something else off of the menu. Well, you know how it is when you're hungry and you've got something specific in mind and you've got a taste for just that? And so your imagination begins working overtime about how wonderful it's going to be. So that means that nothing, absolutely nothing else is going to satisfy you. Well, that's when the whole situation started to go sideways. Um, The customer then asked for their money back. She was told that all sales are final, but she could order anything else on the menu, even a higher-priced item, and she would not have to pay any more. Well, she got angry. She wanted McNuggets. She didn't want filet of fish quarter pounder McRib. She didn't want anything else. She wanted McNuggets, and her I mean, her anger started to escalate to the point where, in her opinion, this was clearly an emergency, and she knew what to do in an emergency, so she took out her phone and dialed 911 for help. Now, I know it's hard for any of us to believe, uh, but the 911 operator did not take her seriously. Um, So the McNugget lady ended up calling 911 three times, uh, um, trying to get help. Well, she never got her McNuggets. What she did get was ticketed, for misusing 911. Interpersonal conflicts, disagreements, arguments, angry conversations, you know, sometimes they build slowly like a summer afternoon thunderstorm, and then there are those times when they just abruptly explode like a terrorist bombing on us. There are those times when We can get as irrational as McNugget Lady, and then there are those long, drawn-out conflicts that we can get ourselves into where each side is firmly entrenched. There's this no-man's land in between us, and we're content to just shell each other with criticisms and threats, and we we release the poisonous gas of gossip. And it's because of times like those that we've started on a journey, a journey where Psalm 133 verse 1 is going to be our guiding north star. We looked at it last week, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So we're taking this road trip because for too long we have seen how interpersonal conflict has then caused divisiveness in interpersonal relationships and in churches. For too long we have seen where our quarrels and our fights have literally allowed our spiritual enemy to have a foothold in our lives. And so last week we kind of 
drove a stake down into the ground that from this point forward, by the help and hope of the Scriptures and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to live with a whole new set of expectations. And those expectations are simply this. We want to live in the life-giving experience of unity with one another. So every journey begins with a first step. And so what is the first step with each of us moving towards unity with others? Well, someone has said that to solve a problem, you've got to first of all understand and define the problem accurately. So to resolve our everyday conflicts and, and quarrels that we can have with one another, we must be able to identify and understand clearly the, the trigger points, the flashpoints there. So grab your Bibles. Open, if you would, to James chapter 4 this morning, or on your device, open up to James chapter 4. Because James 4 is going to help us understand that regardless of the issue that's at stake, most conflicts have a common source. And do you know where most conflicts come from? And this is the question that James bluntly asks us. James chapter 4 starting in verse 1. He writes and says, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Hmm. Okay, so think about the last time you were in an interpersonal quarrel. Maybe it was with your spouse. Maybe it was with one of your kids. Maybe for your, you younger people here, maybe it was with one of your parents or with a friend or, or someone even at work. The first thing that James encourages us to do is to ask the question, what is driving the quarrel? Well, James tells us that the conflict without is revealing the conflict within. Look at how verse 1 continues. Second question, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. Ooh, James is asking us to look within. And yet, isn't this so contrary to the way we tend to approach our arguments with others? If we were asked to explain to a neutral party, why are we in dispute with that person? Typically, what do we naturally do? What is our knee-jerk reaction? It is to describe what that other person is doing or what that other person is not doing. We're acting, we end up acting like a bunch of, or like a four-year-old uh, who points to somebody else and they're being unreasonable. They're, you know, they're being stubborn. So when a parent finds that their four-year-old is having a fight with a sibling, and they intervene, and they look at their four-year-old son and say, Johnny, what is going on here? And what typically comes out of his mouth, he won't give me that toy, or she won't share her candy, or they stuck their tongue out at me. Again, it's pointing outward. And that's our natural inclination. They're stubborn. They're irrational. They're blind. That's our natural first instinctive reaction, to describe everything that they did. But where does James ask us to start? Don't look at them. Look at yourself. But don't misunderstand. 
what verse 1 is not saying. It's not saying that regardless of the conflict, we are always completely at fault. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that regardless of how minor it is or how major it is, if we want to resolve any conflict and move towards reconciliation, we've got to start by looking at our own hearts first. The story is told of a customer service agent who grew weary of being yelled at. I mean, he was exhausted of getting sprayed by the angry spittle from dissatisfied customers who were expecting five-star service but only wanted to pay motel motel six prices. So one day, he kind of noticed that he was oddly detached from yet another customer's tirade. He said he almost felt like he was watching a movie of what was happening, and he couldn't help but think that this angry person's outburst made them look like a monkey. So he had this brilliant idea. He put a giant mirror behind him so that people coming to the counter would see it, and when they saw their own tirades, the tirades ceased. In other words, when people saw themselves yelling and screaming, they stopped yelling and screaming. Folks, the Bible is like a mirror to us, reflecting something about what's going on at the heart level that sometimes is not pretty to see or admit. So in James 4, verse 1, he holds the mirror of the Word up and wants us to face two things about ourselves. Again, look at how verse 1 ends. Look at the first thing that he wants us to see. He says, inside, we've got passions. That word literally means pleasures. To get technical for a moment, that Greek word that he uses is hedone, from which we get our English word hedonist. And a hedonist is someone who's addicted to pleasure. So the motto of a hedonist is, life has got to feel good. So it doesn't matter if you've only, or you're still only experiencing single-digit birthdays, or whether you have more birthdays in your past than you do yet ahead of you. All of us have got this sensual tendency to want life to feel good. And then James says there's a second thing we need to face. That feel-good focus, notice, inflames a war within us. It creates a battle inside of us. What's the battle? The battle is whether or not my desires are going to be led by the Spirit or my desires are going to get hijacked by my flesh. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And Galatians chapter 5, you know, describes this battle that goes on inside of us real clearly when Paul writes and says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So you see what Paul is describing? If I'm walking in the Spirit, then that keeps me from doing what the flesh is wanting me to do, 
But if I'm walking in the flesh, it's keeping me from doing what the Spirit wants me to do. There's a battle going on. So it's always there inside of me every day, every single hour of every day. It's what I bring to the table every time I've got a relational or interpersonal conflict. It's there whether I've initiated the conflict or whether I'm simply responding to the conflict coming into my life. And so the temptation each one of us faces is to focus on what will feel good for me. And boy, does that then create problems in my relationships. Let me just give you an example. I'm going to pick on young couples, but I could pick on anybody uh, for that matter. So you're tired at the, at the end of a long day of, at work, and you come home, and all you want to do is just veg out in front of, of the TV, but your wife, on the, on the other hand, has been alone with, the, alone with the kids all day, and she's looking for some meaningful conversation with words that are more than one syllable long. Both want to feel good. But that's where the battle can erupt, because each wants to feel good, and it starts by revealing the battle within. I've mentioned before that I'm kind of on a Paul trip. Trip. Um, read him recently, and he made this comment, our bodies go where our heart has already gone. Ooh. So that's why here in James 4, he now unpacks specifically where our heart can go. He wants us to see clearly that our external conflicts are fueled by four internal battles, verse 2 and verse 3. Look at how he lists the possible battles that could be going on in our hearts. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Here's the battle for satisfaction. That word desire describes an internal longing or craving for something that will satisfy us. And by the way, we were created by God with positive desires. Not all of our desires are wrong. Some of them are actually positive. So the Bible describes when we're hungry, we want food. If we're thirsty, we want something to drink. When we're lonely, we seek companionship. Paul speaks of his longing, a desire to go to heaven. That's a very positive thing. It's a good thing to desire to be an elder in a local church. So those are all normal, spirit-led desires. Nothing wrong about them. They're just part of being human. But that word can also describe our desires being controlled by the flesh, which is what James is talking about. It's when desire turns to lust. My desire to find satisfaction turns to being driven by my desire for satisfaction, and I will eliminate anyone who gets in my way of getting satisfied, even to the point of murder. So conflicts can arise when even a simple, normal desire for satisfaction becomes a driving force in my life, then it spills out. It hurts others because I'm determined to get what will feel good for me. That's the battle for satisfaction. Second battle. Get the right fingers up here. Second battle. Still in verse 2. 
Peter continues and says, I mean, James continues and says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's the battle for possession. First one was the battle for satisfaction. Now it's the battle for possession. That word covet means a zealous wanting. And again, zealous wanting is used in the New Testament by some of the authors in a positive way. It it describes those times when we zealously want something good for another person. Um, We can have a zeal for God's glory. We can have a zeal for God's purposes. But in the same way as with desire, the flesh can get a hold of our zealous wanting and turn it inward. So instead of us wanting something for somebody else, it now becomes a passionate wanting for something for me. Coveting is the battle to possess what I want. And conflict, well, how does it connect now within conflict with, with, two, with two different people? Well, when two people want the same thing at the same time, but only one person can get it, that's where the conflict is. So think of two toddlers, one toy. That's what has happened. Third battle that could possibly be at, in, inside of us, still in verse 2, James writes and says, <clears throat> James writes and says, you do not have because you do not ask. Here's the battle over acquisition. You do not have. Now think about this. Many times we are in conflict because we are so consumed with getting what we want, but we never stop and ask God to provide. We so easily assume the ways of the world. We think we should just go out and grab it. We should demand it. We should stake our claim to it. We should assert our rights to it. Okay, Just think back on those verbs I just used. Grab it, demand it, stake our claim, assert our rights. Folks, those techniques are guaranteed to tick off others around you. Battle for satisfaction, battle for possession, battle for acquisition. Verse 3 gives us a fourth battle that our hearts can wrestle with, and that is the battle over motivation. James writes, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, look at that little phrase, you ask wrongly. That's the battle over motivation. So there are many times we don't ask God for what we want because the reason behind it is selfish. I'm tired of hurting. I'm tired of being inconvenient. This is, I deserve this. This is my right. But God's not a vending machine who will spit out what we want simply because we mouth certain words in in prayer to Him. He is very concerned and interested in our heart and what's motivating us to ask for that. And remember, what's the battle all about? Whether or not I'm following the urgings of the flesh or whether am I following the leading of the Spirit. So what does James really spoken about here. If we're going to be serious, if as we were talking about at the end of last week, we are going to make every effort to live in unity with each other by resolving our conflicts and, and seeking reconciliation, then the first step in the journey 
is to look within. Will I? Will, will you? You know, doggone it, there are sometimes that passages, pastors just don't want to have to talk about. Why? Because it's got to flow through our own hearts first. I would love to have given, let Brent preach this this morning, not me. Why? Because I've got to then say, Rick, am I willing? Let's take a moment and just consider how can I willingly look within? And again, let me just say it real clearly so no one misunderstands. The Word of God does not tell us to assume that we are completely at fault when we are in an interpersonal conflict with somebody else. That's not what this is saying. But it does say to start forward towards reconciliation and resolving it, the first step is to honestly admit, maybe I've contributed to the quarrel and the conflicts. How do I go there? Well, it means we've got to, first of all, admit that the heart of the issue is my heart, not the issue. What do I mean by that? Well, I've already mentioned that our tendency is to make the issue an external matter. We don't want to look within. We want to keep it out there. And by the way, we do this in two ways. One, we make it external when we focus on the other person. The issue becomes their attitude, their lack of perspective, the fact that they don't know the Bible like I know the Bible. When we go down that line of thinking, we're keeping the issue external to us by focusing on that person. But we can also do it a second way. We can make it external or try to keep it external by focusing on a principle. Not just by focusing on a person, but by focusing on a principle. So the issue is, is the right interpretation of that verse of Scripture. Or it's my constitutional rights. Or it's just what's just and fair in this situation. Now, I'm not suggesting we ignore the issue. But when a quarrel or fight breaks out, the Scriptures ask us, first of all, to look within. Why? See, if I can keep the issue as an external matter, then it's all about how I know better or I am better. And when we do that, we make being right or being more righteous, the goal. And friends, that never leads anywhere good, ever. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. I love what some of your translations say, above all, guard your heart. Oh, yeah. Guard your heart. So if we're going to make every effort to reconcile our differences, then the first step is to acknowledge that the heart of the issue is my heart, not the issue. Am I willing to open up and even see how my heart may be involved and how my desires may even in some way have been hijacked by the flesh? 
Okay, let's all take a deep breath together. That was something, wasn't it? See, I told you, this is why sometimes I don't like dealing with Scripture. It just comes at me so heavily. But there's a second step you can take if you're willing to look within. And that is ask the Lord for His evaluation of your heart. Oh, I love what David says in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, like David, we need to ask the Lord. We need His help to see where our heart may not be in the right place. We need His divine help because we can still be blind. We can have blind spots. We can be deceived. We can struggle to honestly know the motives and intentions that are flowing down deep inside of us. But isn't it wonderful to know that this is exactly the work that the Holy Spirit does so well? Especially when the Holy Spirit takes Scripture and applies it into our specific situation. And the promise of this is in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the, what's the last word? Heart. Ooh. Ask. And He'll show it. So once I admit that I need to look at my own heart, because it's really probably the heart of the issue, and secondly, that I need to go to the Lord and ask for, to give, that He would give me His evaluation of my heart, then let me suggest one other thing, and that is to ask others for their observation of your heart. Ask others. You know, Proverbs 12 and verse 15 encourages us with these words, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now, think carefully with me here. We do not go to other people to ask what they think about the issue. In other words, we're not trying to hear from them whether they think we are right or more righteous in this situation. Rather, we are because if we do that, by the way, we're just kind of building our camp, building our fan base, okay? No, what we're doing is we're asking that trusted individual to tell us the truth about where they see our heart is in the issue. If you're willing to do this, and by the way, this is not for the faint of heart, but if you're willing to do this, ask them two questions, or at least even ask one of these two questions. The first could be a question that comes out of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21, which states, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You all know that verse well. So ask the trusted friend. Friend, you know me well enough. You know what I treasure. You know what I value. You know what I think is of such worth to me. So what does that say to you about where my heart is? Okay, if you don't want to ask him that one, then maybe ask him another one. How about from Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, which says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So then ask your friend this. 
You've heard me speak. You've heard me in lots of different conversations. You may have even heard me talk about this issue that's a dividing point between me and this other individual. Based on what you have heard come out of my mouth, my words, what does that say to you about where my heart is? Now, none of us will do that. None of us will ask those kinds of questions of a trusted friend unless we are absolutely convinced of Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6 that begins with these words, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So how do we look within? First, by recognizing that the heart of the issue is my heart, not the issue. Second, to ask the Lord for His evaluation of my heart And then and only then do I, third, ask for the observations of others. The lack of getting a McNugget meal is probably not going to unhinge you. I don't suspect it would. But all of us sometimes need to take a good look in the mirror, this mirror. Because that's the first step towards living in the unity that is both good and pleasant, is it not?